Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. Well, Ma Bell, remember Ma Bell? Well, you knew Bob Bell is service, you know? And they'd give these ads on TV. It'd be out there, and there'd be snow and sleet and hail and everything coming down, the wind blowing, and there's this guy out there messing with the wires. That's my bell. Now, this brings in the other two elements I mentioned in our opening session, perspective and relevance. How you see things, how you see anything, goes a long way towards determining how you see yourself. This is really a, something that, you know, all you got to do is think about a little bit. How you see yourself figures significantly how you define your sense of purpose, like IBM and Caterpillar and Ma Bell, and, and the same thing if you want to look at McDonald's, you know, fast food at a decent price in a clean uh, environment and get it there in a hurry. That's, they knew what they were doing. Okay, now, for example, if I myself see myself as a victim, my purpose in life will probably have more to do with how I can avoid being victimized by others than with what I can do to enrich other people's lives. So how I see myself will determine, really, to a large extent, what I'm going to do in my relationships to others. This is the same with the church. Now, maybe we can get a better idea of this perspective and relevance by just taking a, a look at liturgical reform in the church. I'll get back to this next week a little bit, but this, this is the issue that got the most attention and that still provokes strong controversy. Without a doubt, worship is a pivotal concern. It represents our highest value because it corresponds to our greatest need. If we don't worship God, we'll fall into some form of idolatry, will become enslaved to some addiction, whether it be pleasure, power, possessions, prestige, or whatever. Now, I used to tell high school kids when I gave retreats, you know, I say, give yourself to God or something else will get you. And that sums it up. But now, how we worship externally, how we give ourselves to God, the signs and conventions that we use can be subject to change according to culture and so on. So some periodic Renewal might be a good idea, if only to maintain a full and meaningful level of participation. Oh, does those words ring a bell? <laughs> However, if that's the only purpose we have in mind, we will limit our thinking to whether a given change will make the celebration more meaningful and bring about greater participation. In fact, that's what happened. It's not surprising, but it is unfortunate. The problem is, is that if we limit this question to the symbolic meaning and participation, the issue lacks perspective. We also need to ask, why do we worship in the first place? When we frame the need for change in that context, we have a principle against which to measure the validity of the change. We're then talking about the radical nature and ultimate purpose of worship, its power to transform us as individuals, and to create a faith community, to bring us into solidarity with love for one another, and to equip us to act as one in proclaiming the good news of God's love to the world in worship 
witness, and service. There can be no question of whether a change is just for the sake of change or just to make the liturgy a little more exciting. No. It has to equip us to evangelize. So why the change? Prior to the liturgical renewal that reached its high point well before the council was called, most people had taken part in public relation, public worship for a lifetime with little awareness of the liturgy's potential to bring about reconciliation, to impart a sense of corporate identity, to strengthen human solidarity across ethnic and racial lines, and to give shape and substance to a Christian's call and capacity to bring about the kingdom of God. We experience worship more as a personal act of religion, more like a private prayer, a one-to-one relationship with God without due regard for the liturgy's highest purpose, to give glory to God, not only as individuals, but as the mystical body of Christ, and not only to be sanctified in ourselves, but to be, as Vatican II put it, quote, marvelously fortified to preach Christ in our lives. And that's what the liturgy was supposed to do. Marvelously fortify us to preach Christ. So people who don't see the Mass in this light will measure changes in the liturgy from a different point of view. When told, we're going to turn the altars around, or (laughs) you have to exchange a sign of peace, they will see these things as a mere distraction, not a significant measure aimed at helping us to grow as the mystical body of Christ and preparing us to fulfill the mission of the church. In a word, perspective makes a great difference. And how does relevance fit into this picture? We have to see how worship relates to the questions that will be asked of us before the judgment seat of God. How does my worship relate to this question? I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. Hungry and you fed me. Homeless and you took me in. And so forth. Isn't just how I feel when I worship? But does it really produce fruit? If there's no consistency between Mass on Sunday and what we do about charity and social justice for the rest of the week, we will have seriously compromised the relevance of our worship. It will be irrelevant, like Father Delp said, the churches are coming to a dead end. Arguments about the liturgy in terms of more or less mystery or how to encourage people to participate are without merit if they lack relevance to worship's ultimate purpose, which is to give glory to God in a way that makes us the beneficiaries, transforming us into the image of the God whom we adore, marvelously fortified to fulfill God's will in our lives, as was Jesus. So we looked at identity, purpose, perspective, and relevance as they figure in strategic thinking. There's one more aspect to the process of management planning, relationships, not only within the organization, but to others. If you go back to the example of IBM, you'll find that management decisions were shaped by relationships that kept the company viable in the new and growing field of what is now known as IT, information technology. If an organization is interested in finding purpose and meaning only in itself, then of course a relationship factor doesn't come into play. In this regard, a good example would be the difference between the Old and New Testament between the way the chosen people saw themselves rather exclusively in terms of their relationship with Yahweh and the way the church sees herself, not as an end in itself, 
but a means for bringing all people into a saving relationship with God. Now, at this point, you're probably all wondering, you know, I said, what does this have to do with Vatican II? <laughs> well, you see, I could just up and tell you this. I could tell you that the Second Vatican Council was about evangelization. Guess what? That would be absolutely true. But it wouldn't advance your understanding of the council. I'm reminded of this story about this skydiver out west. He got caught in a big, strong wind that blew him way off course. And he ended up landing in a small, or no, a, t- a stand of tall pines. His parachute caught in some branches way up off the ground. And he found himself in a tight spot. If he struggled too vigorously to reach the trunk of the tree, his chute might lose its hold on the branches and he'd plunge to his death. Looking down, he noticed that there was a well-worn path that ran close to the base of the tree. So he had hopes that perhaps someone would, someone would come along and help him out of his predicament. A few minutes later, sure enough, someone came walking along toward the tree. He was reading a book. The fellow in the tree carefully called, Hello! The person on the path looked around, then up and shouted back, Hello! The skydiver asked, Where am I? The fellow on the ground responded, You're in a tree. (laughs) Then the skydiver said, You must be a priest. The person on the ground said, How did you know? The fellow caught in the tree said, Well, what you say is true, but it doesn't help. (laughs) Now, that would be the case if I had simply told you that Vatican II was all about evangelization. On the other hand, if you look at this event in terms of management planning, you may come away with an understanding of what it was and continues to be. You will understand, first of all, that it wasn't meant to change the church. It was meant to define the church's identity in itself and in its relationship to the world. While it didn't change doctrine, it did take a new perspective on its view of the church, its purpose, and its mission. The underlying agenda throughout was the church's relevance to the critical condition in which humanity now finds itself. These are not, I didn't make this up. Once again, to quote John the 23rd. In the face of this twofold spectacle, a world which reveals a grave state of spiritual poverty, and the Church of Christ, which is still so vibrant with vitality. Wow, was the church in trouble? No, it was vibrant with vitality. We find from the time we ascended to, we, from the time we ascended to the Supreme Pontificate, despite our unworthiness and by means of an impulse of divine providence, have felt immediately the urgency of the duty to call our sons together to give the church the possibility to contribute more efficaciously to the solution of the problems of the modern age. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. Margaret Mweshi traces her vocation to the religious life to a visit she made to a school for disabled children in Zambia, her homeland in Africa. She'd heard of the miracles that took place there thanks to the heroic efforts of the nun in charge. Now a sister herself, she tries to work a few miracles of her own as she provides medical help and motherly care to children in need. During our lifetime, we'll meet many who inspire us. How grateful we are to God for the miracle of these faith-filled witnesses. It's a lesson from the missions. 
Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family and mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents. That's why they called Vatican II. In one of his off-the-cuff remarks, John XXIII once said, I want to throw open the windows of the church so that we can see out and people can see in. (laughs) After centuries of conflict and in recognition to the importance of relationships, he unilaterally opened the door to dialogue with atheists, scientists, Protestants, non-Christian religious leaders, anyone who showed a like concern for the well-being of humanity as that found in the writings of his papal predecessors over the previous 80 years. Paul VI, in referring to the council, said that, quote, the church needed to examine herself to find her footing in the modern world while remaining faithful to her principles. These statements and actions reflect the rationale behind management planning. Now, does this mean that the Pope and the bishops gathered in Rome and said, let's do some strategic thinking? No, it does not. In fact, the term strategic thinking probably wasn't even in existence at that time. And if the council had started out that way, the council would not have been what John XXIII meant it to be, an unqualified trust in divine providence and in Christ's promise to be with his church until the end of time. Not before, during, or right after the council concluded were its members aware of the fact that their attention to identity, purpose, perspective, relevance, and relationships constituted an exercise in strategic thinking. The connection would would not become apparent until the publication of Paul VI's Apostolic Exhortation on Evangelization in the Modern World, published December 8, 1975, ten years after the closing session of the Second Vatican Council. As I mentioned earlier, all 987 position papers submitted by the Preparatory Commission were thrown out. As new ones were being prepared, members of the Vatican staff began to get nervous. They were afraid that matters were getting out of hand. When John XXIII died on June 3, 1963, and as the Cardinal said about electing a new pope, Not a few of them were hoping that the next pontiff would call the whole thing off. Giovanni Montini, as Pope Paul VI, showed the same implicit trust that John had in the Holy Spirit and without hesitation declared that the second session of the council would begin as scheduled on September 29th, the same year, 1963. At this point, we can take a closer look at how the council members went about their strategic thinking blessed with the grace of not being preoccupied with the thought that they were indeed engaged in management planning. They had to pay attention to the Holy Spirit, not themselves. The two preeminent documents of the Council are Lumen Gentium, Light of the Nations, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, which sets forth Vatican II's understanding of the Church, and Gaudium et Spes, that means joy and hope which is the Council's understanding of the Church's relationship to the world. In the first document, we find a precise definition of the Church's identity and purpose in the very very first paragraph. 
quote, by her relationship with Christ, the church is a kind of sacrament or sign of intimate union with God and of unity of all mankind. She is also an instrument for the achievement of such union and unity. For this reason, following in the path laid out by its predecessors, this council wishes to set forth more precisely to the faithful and to the entire world the nature and encompassing mission of the church, identity, purpose. The conditions of this age lend special urgency to the church's task of bringing all men to full union with Christ, since mankind today is joined together more closely than ever before by social, technical, and cultural bonds. The dogmatic constitution goes on to make the central statement that the members of the church are the people of God. It outlines the hierarchical structure of the church and discusses the collegiality of bishops joined with their head, the vicar of Christ. Chapter 4 treats at length of the special status of the laity and their consequent role in fulfilling the mission of the church by bringing Christ into the world in which they live. Chapter 5 represents another core teaching of the council. Keep this one in mind, the universal call to holiness. There are also chapters on, on religious on the communion of saints and on the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, defining her role in the mystery of Christ and the church. Gaudium et spes, joy and hope, and the Council's Declaration on Religious Freedom together represent a profound inquiry into the nature of man, the dignity of the human person, the interdependence of the individual and society, religious freedom, and the role of the church in the modern world. Gaudium et Spes also addresses some special problems under which heading we find family, culture, socioeconomic life, modern politics, and the fostering of peace in a troubled world. This pastoral constitution draws on the writings of the popes from Leo XIII to Pius XII, particularly those encyclicals dealing with human dignity, unity, justice, and peace. By reason of their unique importance, divine revelation and the liturgy received special treatment by the council. The rest of the documents deal at length and depth with topics already raised in Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes. The decrees, for example, on media, ecumenism, the Eastern churches, the office of bishop, priestly formation, the appropriate renewal of religious life, the apostolate of the laity, the ministry and life of priests and primary evangelization, that is, missionary activity, along with the declarations on religious freedom, Christian education, and the relationship of the church to non-Christian religions, all deal with aspects of the church itself or with the church's relationship to the world. So with hindsight, in order to understand and appreciate the significance of all these documents from the council, we have to see them in terms of what came to be recognized as the driving force and ultimate purpose of Vatican II, which was fulfilling the commission given to the church by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he was returning to the Father. Quote, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always unto the end of the age.
what we are speaking of here has come to be known as evangelization. There are those who question the advisability of using that six-syllable word to describe the fundamental and all-inclusive purpose of the church. Could we not find some other noun in the English language to use in its place? Not likely. You know, you never hear anyone complain about the use of D-Day. You know, people, D-Day. Describes the Normandy invasion on June 6, 1944. That little term, D-Day, sums up what has since filled volumes with pictures and words. The defining moment in the battle to liberate Europe from Nazi control. A day of destiny, an event of epic proportions. A decisive stroke that took months to plan in view of its formidable logistics and closely guarded hopes for a strategic advantage based on surprise. It was a bold venture that in the end depended on elements as uncertain as the weather and as magnificent as the heroic bravery of the soldiers who stormed the beaches and gave the Allies a foothold on the continent. Now, admittedly, the word evangelization doesn't have the pop of a term like D-Day. But as a word picture, it, has, it contains an immense amount of factual content and symbolic meaning, as does D-Day. Maybe we can develop some popular way of expressing what Jesus meant when he commissioned his followers to make disciples of all the nations, equivalent to the church's D-Day that is ongoing until the end of time. But meanwhile, the word evangelization will have to do. It sums up all that was said by the Second Vatican Council and all that we need to know about that astonishing admonition voiced by Jesus, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The outcome of that proposition and our eternal destiny will be determined by this. Do we accept the gospel, the good news of God's love, or do we not? The word evangelization came into common use only after the appearance of Paul VI's apostolic exhortation, evangelization in the modern world. This document was based on the 1974 Synod of Bishops, which consisted of a prayer for reflection on Vatican II expressed in the following terms. Quote, After the council and thanks to the council, which was a time given her by God at this turning point of history, does the church or does she not find herself better equipped to proclaim the gospel and to put it into people's hearts with conviction, freedom of spirit, and effectiveness? In an introductory statement, Pope Paul wrote that the objectives of the Second Vatican Council, quote, are definitively summed up in this single one. What was the purpose of the Second Vatican Council? Definitively summed up in this single one. To make the church of the 20th century ever better fitted for proclaiming the gospel to the people of the 20th century. He also quoted the illuminating words that he heard from that great assembly. Quote, We wish to confirm once more that the task of evangelizing all people constitutes the essential mission of the church. It is a task and a mission which the vast and profound changes of present-day society make all the more urgent. Evangelizing is, in fact, the grace and vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity she exists in order to evangelize. Wow. Vatican II. 
Given that perspective on the church's deepest identity and definitive purpose, we can come to the realization that the council actually treated evangelization under three headings, commonly categorized as renewal, ecumenism, and primary evangelization. Three categories. That is to say, bringing the gospel more fully into our own hearts, working for the reunification of Christendom, and bringing the gospel to people who have yet not had the opportunity to hear the good news. Now, at this point, we don't want to get involved in how these terms were applied in practice. We'll do that in the third and final session. But for the moment, we want to focus on the view that emerges from the documents themselves and from the statements made by Paul VI and John Paul II. The first of these three categories, commonly called renew, what I mean by that last comment is people, you say renew, and they can make that mean anything they want. But if you, if you look at the documents, this is what they meant. Renew is the category that got the most attention, without reference to and almost to the exclusion of the other two. They just talked about renew, didn't relate it to ecumenism or missionary enterprise. The call for renewal was not about changing one's belief, but a call to undergo a process of conversion that would make those beliefs come alive in our hearts. That's what Vatican II was looking for. The 1974 Synod said, in effect, that, quote, in order to give a valid answer to the demands of the council, which call for our attention, it is absolutely necessary for, for us to take into account a heritage of faith that the church has the duty of preserving in its untouchable purity and of presenting it to the people of our time in a way that is as understandable and persuasive as possible. They weren't interested in changing the doctrine of the church. They were interested in presenting it in a way that was understandable and persuasive. This concept of renewal was not limited to personal conversion on the part of individuals, nor was it directed primarily to institutional changes in the church. In order to understand what the council envisioned, we have to understand the concept of culture. That's another word that came into common use only in recent years. But without question, it is a word whose meaning provides the context for understanding what the council means by the Latin term renovatio, renovation in English, though more commonly translated as renew. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.